Hello all and welcome to another week of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. We're recording on the uh, Thursday night this week, unlike our usual Saturday morning recordings because Everald's got a very busy weekend ahead of him. But uh, here with Everald right now, how are we? I'm, I'm real fine, James. It's good to talk with you and uh, and a bit of a rarity to talk on for us to talk on a Thursday night. But uh, never mind, I'm actually going out to, to the little town of Linville where I did my 90th birthday walk. They've invited me back to having a festival out there and they want me to talk about books. I'll mention that later because they're trying to get oldies to write books and uh, and we might finish up with that a bit uh, a bit later on. But the, look, the news of the week seems to be that uh, 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 Dan Andrews, the problem Dan Andrews has with the, the legislation he tried to put through for more powers and pandemic and parotate pulling is now, you start the conversation. What do you make of that? I mean, I'm sort of sort of torn on it because I, you know, I mean, neither of us here are very big uh, big fans of power concentrating in one man's hands too much. But on the flip side, we've also talked about conversely on this show how um you know COVID's going to be here to stay for a while. There may be other pandemics around the corner, and we need to be prepared for these sort of things. And I think one thing that COVID exposed at least in um in state and federal governments in every state and again federally is that we were sort of woefully underprepared legislation wise for a pandemic uh, in, in the first couple of months of the pandemic it was whose responsibility is this whose responsibility is that what sort of powers can we use i suppose as the pandemic continued on the federal government kept deflecting responsibility um, but at, at the start there was definitely a lot of uncertainty about sort of who, what, where, when, why, how, about this thing, how it's going to play out. So though I I understand concerns, but proper researched, militated concerns, the concerns of people like uh, legal groups and human rights groups, not the concerns of crazies on the street, we'll talk about them later, but I understand the very valid concerns of legal groups and uh, human rights groups as to the, the power concentrating in the hands of premiers, but we certainly do need some sort of legislative mechanism to address pandemics because again as we saw at the start of COVID we were woefully underprepared and so when the next if and when another pandemic comes or another major event comes we do have to have some way we can get on the front foot. Well, well we certainly do and I think in, in some earlier programs of my uh, podcast I, I mentioned the fact that the Australian constitution fails to address the issue of how we handle a national crisis and we wound up the way we are now because health the constitution says Health is the province of the states and quarantine is the province of the federal government because it can control the borders and that's all that it says. And so when there is a medical crisis, which COVID has been, the constitution leaves all the power with the states. And that meant there was no real coordination of it. They set up a national cabinet, but it had no teeth and it depended on goodwill all around and they seem to abuse one another mightily now. Uh, I, I, I believe we've got to have a referendum that adds to the constitution uh, uh, the way in which a, a national crisis authority can be called into being by the governor general on the advice of the prime minister and the states to handle a crisis and that that authority has power, not just goodwill powering around the table. They've got power to command the resources of the nation. And I think you know, that's got to happen. Otherwise, we, we'll continue to have this. Now, there's two sides of it. There, there's one giving a national crisis power, 
And if that happened, you wouldn't have to close state borders because all they can do is they can declare hotspots all over the country without closing the borders down. And they put all the resources of the nation into those hotspots, not just the particular state's resources. Yeah, and so I think that, uh, you know, that there is um, there's that. But then there's the other side. If people defy the National Crisis Authority, what power should it have to put people in jail, find them, uh, you know, what have you? Does that go into the Constitution or do we have uniform legislation put across Australia to say if you defy the National Crisis Authority, each state can put you in jail or, or, or whatever? Now, now, how do you see that? Oh. That's a very rough question. I mean, uh, it depends really on what the sort of disobedience you're talking about is. Like, you know, I'm a big, um, very against carceral sentences and very against fines. So it's a very woolly problem. I think I've talked about before how one of the best things Victoria did, or so I'm told, in, the sec um, in their second lockdown was rather than having police on street corners handing out fines, they had health officials on street corners handing out masks for mask compliance. So yeah. I definitely think... Um, a national crisis authority in that regard um, wouldn't would be able to, um, with its resources, hopefully be able to do a lot more things like that, i.e. Yeah, if yeah, people yeah. were disobeying something like a mask mandate or if people were trying to disobey things like in, say, a flood, an evacuation mandate, you, you'd only resort to sort of the, a jail or a fine system in the absolute worst of circumstances and you'd be looking more to promote those healthy well, not healthy being the wrong word, but those positive behaviours in a crisis situation, whether that be mask wearing, evacuation, etc. And the one thing the National Crisis Authority would have to do to do that is not just be a police, guns and batons approach, but also a health officials, crisis officials, firefighters, emergency services, SES, all those sorts of people would be able to be involved. And I think in a national authority situation, you'd be able to get those people mobilised a lot more quickly than like the ad hoc state versus state approach. Well, that's true. And if the National Crisis Society has specifically states in the country that they can command resources from state governments, local governments, Congos, whatever, they've got the power to do things that at the moment have to be, you know, done by goodwill. And that, that needs to be that needs to be spelled out. But as you say, we need to have some sort of system that encourages people to do things more so than penalizes them for not. To, for not doing things. Also, one would hope that a, the very presence of a national crisis authority could cause us to invest more in, 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 in health. It would give the Commonwealth government more, more, more power to invest in health to prepare. I think, as you mentioned earlier, when we got hit with this, we were really under-resourced uh, you know, to handle the matter. And now we had a better hope than the United States because the United States has an almost totally privatised health system. And so, you know, you had the Presbyterian Church in the United States running hospitals everywhere. Well, Joe Biden couldn't command them to do anything. He had to sort of ask them to. And their highly privatised health system, uh, it was terrible. At least we, we, we don't have a highly privatised health system. It's partially done that. But, but we've really shown that we, we're under-invested uh, uh, in health. And, and one of the things that when this comes down is, the states and the feds, with or without a crisis, probably got to say, what do we have to do to get prepared, you know, for this to happen in the future? Yep, I completely agree. And one of the things that is a little bit of a cause for concern for me right now, at least, is seeing in the Northern Territory COVID reaching um, remote Indigenous communities and spreading in Indigenous um, 
yeah. settlements and communities up there because the health outcomes, the hospital access, the access to health services in those areas are always woefully inadequate. Now, in a national crisis authority scenario, it wouldn't just be the Northern Territory health system those people could lean on in the event of a crisis like this, but also the federal a crisis authority that yeah. can go in and boost and bolster the resources uh, that the Northern Territory itself simply could not muster. Um, now, not to mention the other thing that a national crisis authority could do, given it's summer um, very, very shortly, um, just, just a little addendum, because as someone who's lived in the Blue Mountains, um, don't, I don't anymore, moved last week, but as someone who has lived a lot in the Blue Mountains, I'd just like to take a quick detour and say um, the other cool, cool and good thing a national crisis authority could do would be have a federal um, federal bushfire fighting helicopter fleet, which is another okay. thing we are woefully you, underprepared for in this country. The word, the word crisis can be determined in a kind of whether it's a, it, it's a pandemic, it's a fire, it's a flood, it's a drought, and that can be, mm. it can be brought into, uh, you know, to do that one way or another. But coming back to the situation we have now, Dan Andrews, who's got these current legislation about lockdowns, I think runs out in the middle of December, and he decided he'd bring in, not extend that, but bring in a more permanent thing that gave him more power. And it really worried me, the power that he tried to take on to himself. I've been a, a pretty consistent supporter of Dan Andrews handling a difficult situation in Victoria, the difficult one, the worst in Australia. All of a sudden, he wanted more power. And I have a theory that when you give people power in any situation, they're always reluctant to give it up. At the moment, we've got prime ministers, premiers, health ministers, health officers who've had enormous power. They've had more power than I've ever seen in my life in, in 90 years, and they have more power. And I believe they get to a point subconsciously, I don't know that they have, that they're reluctant to give up these powers, and they dream that if they've got more powers, they can do an executive, a good job. And I think they can end up getting a bit power drunk. Now, uh, as, as to how we overcome that is another matter. How do you see it? Um, what you've just said reminds me of sort of a, a thing I've read in a, a book about behavioural economics called The Endowment Effect. And The Endowment Effect is this economic idea that once you've got something um, and it becomes yours, you don't like to give it up. So you could get someone and you could give them, I could give you a coffee and me a tea, right? A cup of tea. And you could offer me to trade and I'd say, no, no, I want my cup of tea because it's my cup of tea. But if at the start you gave me the cup of coffee and you the cup of tea and tried to trade it, I'd be like, no, no, I want the cup of coffee because it's mine. And because I've developed the attachment to my cup of coffee. And it's the same sort of thing with these powers. Once the premiers have them, once Dean Andrews has his pandemic powers, once Don Perrottet has his pandemic powers, it's like, these are mine now. I don't want to give them up. Yes, I didn't have them before COVID, but now I've got them, they're mine, and I don't want to give them away. I want to keep them. And it's the sort of thing where, you know, if you'd ask Dan Andrews before the pandemic, before he had all these powers, do you think giving these powers to a premier would be a good idea? He'd probably say no, but now he's got them all. It's yeah, the same deal with Paratech. Well, I got into trouble on Twitter when Dan Andrews bought this legislation out. I said, but the last time I saw a fellow wanting all his sorts of powers was with, with Adolf Hitler. Now, people claim that I said he was Adolf Hitler. I didn't. I said the last time I saw this, but every time Hitler in Germany asked the, 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 the German parliament for more power, he said there was a national emergency. This was essential in the national. And so he, 
he got more and more power to get rid of Jews and gypsies and close down businesses and confiscate property in the national interest. And he kept saying it was essential. And people said, oh, well, it's essential. And, 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 and that's what Dan Andrews was saying. He had to have these power. Now, I certainly disassociate. I don't think he's anything like it. But what I was saying was, he was making almost the same statements as Hitler made. Now, Hitler, Hitler had a, a bloodthirsty reason for saying it, Dan does. But nevertheless, this business that we've got to do it because there's an emergency is it, a very dangerous business, isn't it? I see what you mean. Um, I, I can see how people took what you said like the wrong way because any time um, even a loose Hitler comparison is drawn, it's obviously a very murky water to wade through. But I think um, that the greater point at play here is that while Dan Andrews doesn't necessarily have any malice in wanting to keep the powers around, um, the next premier who comes in and asks for more powers under a similar mandate may not be as um, as good-hearted as Dan Andrews in asking for the powers. I mean, you, you look at the Victorian Liberal Party, Dan Andrews' opposition, and up until I think two months ago, they wanted to bring back gay conversion therapy as part of their um, policy platform. Now, they, they wanted to return that power to the state. Now, um, I'm not trying to draw any comparison between the Victorian Liberals and a dictatorship either, but as soon as you associate that power grab mentality with people who aren't as um, good faith in the exercise of their powers, that's when it starts to become worrying. So whether, that, whether it's a huge problem in and of itself that, Dan Andrews is getting these powers is one thing, but the precedent it sets for successive premiers to do the same thing under the cover of a national emergency is, I think, the worry. Well, well, it, it, now it's very interesting the way this has unfolded. Opposition grew. When I first raised it, the opposition was reasonably to that, and it just grew and grew in, in various ways. And then, unfortunately, some bad elements get into it as soon as you start the debate and people started marching and doing and doing dreadful things as you know i'm a i'm a non-marcher but now uh, there's a it's reached a point of opposition where dan andrews has delayed the debate i think and and and, uh, and and we're not exactly sure what happened but what's interesting is that Perrottet was trying to do the same thing in new south wales and he got the message that he better pull his legislation because he's watching what happened in Victoria. And that's quite interesting. And again, I think this gets back, if you have a national crisis authority which the constitution gives power, then you have an addendum that says these are the way they exercise those powers. And it's all laid in the constitution. Nobody can go saying that somebody's grabbing at laws because you've covered it all, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the, in, in the constitution. And so it comes down to the fact that we're not geared as a nation to handle this uh, at all. And so we have these anomalies where uh, McGowan in Western Australia is not going to open his borders till the end of January, and yet New South Wales and Victoria are running one of them now. And so there's great, and Anastasia is a bit slower than the other states in doing it in Queensland. I don't say she's slow, but she's delaying it a bit more. And so I think we've got this situation where people are vastly confused as to what they're able to do, crossing borders and getting home. You've got to read the fine print real hard before you know what to do. So it all comes down to the fact that we, we have not been prepared for this thing and, and, and we better be prepared for this thing. No, I, um, 
I completely agree. I, I think that's a pretty good sentiment. I think the what this decentralized approach, I, I think the confusion is at the heart of it. Um, but moving on to something a bit more harrowing now, we, we um moving on from that to a similar related note. Um, seeing these marches in the streets of Melbourne in relation to Dan Andrews's proposed legislation. We've seen people walking with gallows, chanting, yeah. hang Dan Andrews, hang Dan Andrews. Um, Mark McGowan in WA has had to close his electoral office because of um, violence, threats, death threats, rape threats to himself and his staffers. Um, at the marches in Melbourne, uh, we saw Craig Kelly there. We saw Peter Credlin there. We saw Victorian uh, State MP Bernie Finn there all stoking these flames of hate, of evil, of um, something that borders on fascism. It's these anti-vaccine elements. Um, and this is one of the problems you face. I got involved in this debate. Then all of a sudden I said to myself, I don't want to keep company with these people who've now entered the debate. I tell you, you've got to get out of the debate because you don't want to be with them. And that brings all those bad elements in. Now, time's marching on, James. I think we better get on to one of our favourite subjects, uh, when I want to say favourite, one of the most discussed subjects is Christian Porter. Uh, now, the news media allege that he has resigned. The West Australian newspapers have had it on the front page. He's, I haven't heard him make a direct statement, but everybody is assuming that, you know, it's all, uh, it's all correct and that he won't run, you know, for a seat. Now, uh, there, there's a great debate about this. Some people are saying he was handed out of Parliament and all of that sort of thing. But my feeling is that he handled the thing pretty dreadfully right from the start. He didn't need to get himself, uh, you know, into the situation that he's in, by the way, in which he uh, went about it all and having blind trust and whatever you confuse it. Now, I think there's been general relief all over Australia that he's going to go. Now, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean... To the coalition, he was going to be electoral poison at the next election, make no mistake. Um, I think and I hope he is still electoral poison for the coalition because we cannot let the resignation of Christian Porter um, paper away and wash away with the sands of time the, this government's horrible and neglectful treatment of women across the country, um, the standard they walk past and the standard they accept as to the treatment of women, uh, the revelations that have come out not only by Brittany Higgins, but by former members of the LNP, like Julia Banks, who've talked about the misogyny within the party um, and the attitudes within the party of the sort of private school boys club that runs the LNP. Uh, we can't let Christian Porter, if he does resign, we can't let that be the end of this. We can't say, well, the bad man is gone now. All these problems have washed away because these problems are institutional. They're systematic, not just in the Liberal Party. I'm sure in every other political party, they persist too. And they persist in the private sector as well. So even though Christian Porter has become sort of a, um, an effigy to burn um, in terms of the quest for sort of uh, fair and equal treatment of women and ending sexual assaults and sex discrimination and those sorts of things, um, we shouldn't let his resignation detract from the overall cause from which there are still many, many more strides to make. Well, well there is. And, and, and uh, I, 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 again... We don't really have anything in the Constitution that really covers the misbehaviour of politicians and issues such as, uh, you know, all gender issues, whether, whether it's women, whether it's gay people, you know, it, whatever. And, and But actually looking at the way Porter handled it, you know, I watched him when he made his famous press conference where he denied everything and said, I didn't do it. 
if, if he'd come out and said, now, look, I hugely regret that, that the person who was a friend of mine way back in those days, we were close back in those days, that, that she felt that our relationship would lead her to suicide because I don't believe there's anything in our business, but I really feel compassion for her and her family and I want to cooperate with everybody to see if we can sort this out. But to come out and blankly deny it and claim that everybody's after him and it's all evil and whatever, I, I think it was an exercise in how you ought to show some humanity when you're caught up in that situation. But he represents a whole lot of politicians who will immediately deny anything as soon as they're accused about it instead of showing some concern for the issue in the first place. Am I right or wrong? No, I think you're entirely right. And I mean, um, I think I've what what it's not our place to decide whether or not he did it. I'm sure we both have our own personal opinions. Yeah. I think I I think it's not a surprise what mine is, um, yeah. though I won't go and say it. But um, yeah, it, well, the way he came out um, immediately after those accusations broke absolutely reeked of disingenuous. It reeked of cover up, and it reeked of rather than him trying to find truth, justice, and compassion for a potential victim of a horrible act who, even if he didn't do what he was accused of doing, was still a victim of suicide and depression and enormous mental health struggles, um, rather than showing even the slightest hint of compassion, um, he turned it into a, like you say, he accused everyone of a witch hunt against him, a cover-up. Um, he made it look like he, in a situation where a woman was possibly raped as a 16 or 18-year-old, which may have led her to suicide, the Attorney General of the Commonwealth painted himself as the victim, not the woman who was potentially raped and later killed herself. It was an example of how it ought to be held. Now, uh, we're starting to get, uh, you know, to, towards the end of our, our, our program, James, but let me say this whole thing about discrimination. We've got the Religious Discrimination Act uh, now before the Parliament or about to come revived again after several goes. Now, we haven't got time to discuss it this week, but I hope we can discuss it next week because I, I, I've i never been, well, I've been an active and high-profile church person all my life. I've never been persecuted and so on. I, I, I can't understand, you, you know, this one. But I, I'd like to uh, uh, discuss next week whether we've got in Australia religious persecution or whether... There are people who really want religious privileges as what they love that, that an atheist can't get or, or you know or, you know or whatever. And so I think we should have that high on the agenda because that bill as it stands, I think, is quite revolting. And so that, you know, we can get into that next week. I mean, it's uh, were you surprised when they brought it up again? Um look, it, it doesn't surprise me that they keep uh, trying to uh, bring it back from the tomb three days after it uh, after it perishes. I mean, they um, you, like Scott Morrison has um, leaned very, very far into sort of those American style culture wars. Um, like in in America, all the time now, you're seeing this narrative that the real victims of racism and persecution are like the white Christian males, rather than your traditional victims of persecution such as, you know, Muslims, the LGBTQ community, et cetera. And Morrison's leaned into that too a bit uh, with his religious discrimination bill, um, pushing that narrative subtly that, yeah, it's, it's we're, we're in a society now where Christians are the ones who need protection from the evil forces yeah. that be exterior. 
Now, um, I, I think that's bunk. I'm a Christian myself, and I have never never once felt persecuted for my faith. Um, and I'm sure you're the same. Next week, I'd like to go into this in, in some detail because uh, I preach sermons, and sometimes you get people who like your sermon and they don't, and, and everything can get out. And then you've got, uh, you know, not this, you've got the whole issue of the, the footballer guy that brought this up in the first place. And I think we can have a good debate about that. But you've got a little segment you want to add to our program. What, what is it, Jack? Yeah, I just figured um, every week, because we talk about sort of three, four main stories of the week. Um, but I thought maybe a cool thing to add would be a heroes and zeros segment where we just talk about um, for each of us one hero of the week and one zero of the week who did something important or something we liked that um, didn't necessarily... Um, hit the news in as much as much detail um, as sort of our main stories. So um, I'm, I'm plucking two from the US this week. Um, my hero is uh, pop singer Taylor Swift, a personal favourite of mine, for re-releasing her album uh, Red. Um, she got into a dispute with her old record label who tried to, um, who bought like the master recording tapes of all her songs and then tried to use them in ways she didn't like. So she found a way to re-record all her songs independently. Uh, and she's, again, re-released one of her albums and um, it's been a very good listen. <laughs> My, um, Who's your hero for the week, Everell? Well, I actually got two heroes of the week and it's actually Biden and Z. Now, you, you know, they, they had a, or she, I think he pronounced his name properly, that uh, they had a couple of hours hookup on Zoom the way you and I are and, and they didn't agree on everything they wanted to, but I think they calmed the waters a bit and they got the world believe, well, here's these two guys talking and they declared themselves to be friends and uh, and uh, they, they, they still differed over Taiwan and, and a number of other things, but at least there was a dialogue between these two top guys, which I think the world needed. And uh, we, we, I ended up with a feeling, well, look, if there is a genuine dispute, there's a fair chance that these two guys can talk to one another, you know, and uh, and sort it out. Quite different to the Cuban Missile Crisis all those years ago when Kennedy and Khrushchev were having a money and they didn't talk to one another and so American boats are heading out to sink Russian boats and the other way around. And luckily, and Khrushchev was never given proper thing that Khrushchev was smart enough to turn his boats around. And people said he was frightened of... I thought he decided, well, I don't want to be the bloke who's going to blow up the world. And he finally did that. And so I, I think Biden and she, you know, did a good job. Who, who's, your, uh, who, who, who's your zero, uh, you know, for the week? Um, yeah, I, I, I like your hero picks, just by the way. Uh, my zero for the week is uh, it's got to be tech billionaire owner of the Tesla company, Elon Musk. Uh, my a, a politician who I enormously admire this week, Bernie Sanders. Uh, tweeted out just a pretty generic tweet about how we should sort of tax in, in America, they should tax the 1% more and do more to stop um, billionaires from influencing yeah. the government and private interests. And uh, richest man in the world, Elon Musk, commented on Bernie Sanders's tweet something really unpleasant, just said something along the lines of, oh, wow, I didn't even know you were still alive. Um, which, <laughs> oh, like, I don't know, if, if, if you're the richest man in the world and a, um, a politician says, hey, uh, maybe we should tax these super rich people more. And you have nothing better to do but uh, make a joke about how you think the politician who tweeted that about you should be dead. I think that's a pretty sad and 
yeah. pathetic way to exist. And, and, and it is, and that whole issue of that, the one percent and the rest of it is something we can discuss in a in a sympathy. But my zero of the week was that bloke uh, Steve Bannon in the United States, who was uh, Trump's chief publicity man at one point. Then they had a big dust up and he left and then Trump got him back to try and prove that the election was for doubt and, and there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that Bannon along with Trump incited that attack on Congress and I'm pleased that he's now been indicted and he, he's got to appear and he, he might wind up in jail and, and, and you know, I, I, I think that he to me along with Trump but he's the one who got a bit there they reveal a, a side of politics uh, which none of us, none of us want to have any part of. And, and, and so I'm, I'm glad that he might get hauled, hauled in. Over the hot coals. <laughs> True. Well, now, James, I think that's about our half hour and it's a good yarn. And, and, uh, and on Saturday, we went out again. I'm looking forward to going out to my little town of Linville. People are coming out to talk to me about how I started writing books in my old age. And, and a lot of older people now saying, well, can I write a book? Of course, they all can. And I'm going to talk about uh, how you can, because you can write, even if you're in a nursing home bed and you, you, nothing's working except your brain is working and one finger is working and you've got a computer, you can write a book. And, you know, and, and, and so we, we're going to talk about how that might be possible. When are you going to write your first book, James, or have you written one? Oh, <laughs> I um, I do have a little. Um, I've written a couple articles. I've been published uh, yeah. once on judicial diversity um, that we need a more diverse bench, and um, got a forthcoming article in UNSW's Court of Conscience Journal coming out soon about um how historic. You might find this interesting, actually. Historically, um, law like the law has been used to uh, enforce and ingrain racism in this country. The article yeah. goes back as far as like. 1800s, 1900s, and sort of the immigration restrictions placed on um, people from Asia wanting to come here and the white Australia policy and looks at those sorts of things. So baby steps. Oh, well, we ought to have a bit more on that. Well, look, James, you know, that's that's good. And I look forward to uh, uh, to our next discussion that I do uh, every week. I look forward to listeners uh, making comments. I noticed one or two did this week from the feedback we asked for, and that's uh, what we're on about. So... Uh, We'll see you again and, and good to chat tonight. As always, ciao for now. Mm -hmm.